Hello, and welcome to the second episode of SPED Law with Dr. Randolph and Sarah. I'm Sarah Melton, a special education teacher in the upstate of South Carolina and the president of Chapter 728 of Council for Exceptional Children. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Christina Randolph. Tina, tell us a little about yourself. Hey, I'm excited that we get to do this again. Um, I am a classroom teacher of about 16 years general and special education. I have my doctorate in special education. I'm currently at University of South Carolina Upstate um, and making the move to Clemson University. Um, so I am excited. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited about the two cases that we're going to be looking at today. I think that this will be especially relevant for anybody who's been in the education field for the last two and a half years. We're going to be looking at two cases that address COVID-19 and FAPE. As we know, many schools in the nation closed down during 2020 to prevent the spread of COVID. Unfortunately, during these shutdowns, many students with IEPs were not given their special education services. It is likely that these are just the first of many cases on the topic to come. With that being said, let's go ahead and dive into our first case. Our first case is Hernandez versus Grisham from October of 2020. Tina, can you go ahead and just start by setting this case up for us? What were the circumstances that kind of led to this case coming about? Sure. Um, and I want to start again with just a little disclaimer. Factual information, again, was taken from Sped Law blog um, with the permission of Dr. Yell. Um, and the opinions are mine, as always. But this case is, is interesting. Um, it's out of New Mexico. So bear with me because I realize that a lot of us are in South Carolina, but I want to explain how this uh, case will still relate to any court cases that could occur here. Um, so the actual ruling is issued from the United States District Court in Mexico, and it was in October of 2020, as you said. And one of the issues addressed was the provision of fate during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so one of the plaintiffs has a student or her child has a learning disability, was on an active IEP. Um, the school shut down per the governor's order, who um, is Grissom, that's who actually was being um, the court case was against. And basically the child didn't receive all the services of the IEP due to the school being shut down. So services were delivered remotely, similar to how we saw most services in South Carolina um, occur during this time as well. So in this case, the New Mexico IEPs, what they did is they amended all the IEPs to include only remote um, instruction, which again, I think was very common in most states. Um, the parent though said that the school district denied her child fate because some of the services of her IEP could not be provided remotely. Um, and because of that, the child regressed uh, fairly severely, despite having the remote instruction. The parent then asserted that the district needed to provide some kind of in-person services in order for her child to receive a FAPE. Um, so when I read through this court case, I found it really interesting because one is, you know, I'm looking at it and my opinion, and this is my opinion, I don't know that any of us could provide all of the services that we normally would in the classroom remotely regard, you know, um, right. and I feel like it's, it's the judge really had to decide what was sort of, I guess, more legal, if, if that makes mm. sense, was the right to fate, which required the in-person services more important, or was changing or limiting the IEP due to remote learning and COVID-19 closures, you know, which one was the more legal thing and, and sort of how those two um, balanced, I guess, according to the judge and his interpretation of the law. Okay, so before we move on, can we just real quick clarify what FAPE is? Um, oh, yeah. 
Assu- I assume most people listening to this know mm-hmm. special ed, and this is one of the first acronyms you learn, but just in case we have anybody who is maybe in a different part of education that doesn't necessarily know all of our many, many, many acronyms. We, we should start having like a dictionary or something attached with like common acronyms. Gl- a SPED glossary. Yes. <laughs> it's so bad. There's so many, but no, FAPE is free and appropriate public education. And it's really the... like the main like cornerstone of education for kids with disabilities. Um, And it's ensuring access to equal, you know, educational opportunities um, at no cost to parents, access to the same type of services that kids, uh, neurotypical students would have. Anything else that I need to include? With I think that's good. I think that's a good overview. We could honestly do an entire podcast on just FAPE because there's been so much litigation surrounding. It is because it all sort of comes back to that. You right. know what I mean? Like if we're talking about discipline, exclusionary discipline, that's how it impacts FAPE. You know, if we're talking about least restrictive environment, you know, it, it all sort of comes back to that. And right. even how, how many services is enough services? How much progress is enough progress? Right. Like, do they have to make more than the yep. minimum or fully the max? Like there's so much we could talk about there, but I think that that's a good, just um, skimming of what yes. free and appropriate education is. Yes. And you'll hear that. I mean, as we continue to do these, which yeah. we a plan to do, we'll talk about fate because most of these have to do with uh, if it prevents a child from, you know, receiving their free and appropriate public education. Yes. So I think as we continue to talk about this, this is going to be so interesting, like I said, because it's so applicable to what we've been going through in the classroom for the past few years. Right. So do you want to go ahead and share what the ruling of this case was? Yeah. So for this one, and I'm going to explain this in a second, the judge ruled in favor of the parent or child as a preliminary injunction, which give me just a second and I'll go back to what that means. So add it to the glossary, <laughs> add it to the glossary. Uh-huh. Can go and Google that. Um, but I want to read directly from the SPED law blog, because I want to make sure that I share all the information with the ruling in particular. I want to make sure I'm right about it. So the district court judge recognized that even though safety and health were very important considerations, for some students, school closures and remote learning would not be effective and in-person instruction may be necessary. Um, Because Shannon Woodworth's child had suffered severe educational loss when receiving only remote and special education services, the judge held that the State Department of Education was to order the school district to revise the IEP to include in-person instruction and granted the parent's request for an injunction to provide the student with a FAPE. So with the primary injunction, that can happen during during a trial or at the beginning, sort of when the judge is reviewing both sides, what's happening. And what that means is if the case were to continue in front of either a jury or, you know, whatever kind of case it is, if the judge thinks the plaintiff would win, that's when they would do a uh, preliminary injunction. They basically say, yes, the plaintiff's going to win. And so it doesn't go through the entire um, like court case, you know, what we think of typical trial type, type thing. Um, so I think it's interesting because the way my interpretation of this is, is that regardless sort of, of COVID and what government state governments were, were saying and doing ultimately districts, if a student needs that in-person service, then the school needs to do that. Right. And this is a really hard thing to wrap around practically, like to wrap my mind around, Mm -hmm. because just thinking of the realities of COVID-19, especially back in 2020, when we really had no idea what it was like, right. How do you tell a teacher? A lot of teachers are, have a lot of different health concerns. Like We've got a lot of older teachers in the field. We have like, there's so many things that could, right. Right. (laughs) So how do you tell a teacher 
you got to keep teaching all your gen ed peers, all your gen ed uh, co-workers get to teach from home safely, but you have to come and be with your students, which I know some teachers like that would be fine, but I know plenty that that would be extremely dangerous or at least especially what we knew about COVID in 2020, it would be terrifying. And I don't think for a lot of teachers, I don't think there's any amount of hazard pay that would make them feel okay doing that. Yeah. And I think too, the other thing is what, and I'm getting sort of off topic, but it goes along with this. South Carolina is not a union state, but coming from a union state previously and we're, you know, working with other people who go to there, that adds a whole other degree onto, you know, making those decisions on um, sort of, I guess, what's the, the best plan of action. And I think that with, you know, teachers in states that maybe don't have that extra, uh, I'm going to use the word protection. There's some good things with unions and some not good. That's just my own, again, personal opinion. Um, that vulnerability of being told by your district sort of what you're doing or not doing. And I don't have the answers for that. I think that there's debate. Um, And I think too, when we get into the next case, it sort of clarifies more as far as what we've sort of learned. And also regardless of COVID-19 and regardless of the restrictions, federal legislation is federal legislation. And so there's not those um, caveats for, well, if this happens, then we don't have to do this. Right. So is this ruling saying that if we had to shut down again, Mm -hmm. immediately every student in special services has to come to the school for in-person services? No. Now, so two things. One is remember, this is out of New Mexico. Okay. So it really only applies to that district court's jurisdiction, which is New Mexico. But as this ruling as with lots of others, it has a persuasive authority, which means that if um, there's similar COVID-19 related fate cases, they would use this sort of, this is in my word, like as evidence to say, well, this is how this court found. Um, So, you know, again, if South Carolina had a suit against a school district, their attorney could use the ruling out of this case out of New Mexico as persuasive authority. Um, And that could help then the judge in deciding how they should rule in in this state. Um, So the ruling does not mean that all school districts need to immediately require in-person services to all students with disabilities. That's not what that means. What it really means is that students IEP teams must make decisions on the basis of the individual needs of the students. Um, And I know that we'll keep talking about FAPE, but it all comes down to that making a decision based on the individualized needs of the students. And I don't know, I don't believe that that was the general consensus when schools shut down. It was, we have to do it remotely. So what are we going to be able to do remotely? Um, I know that IEPs were amended, but this is really requiring schools to look at individual students and saying, can the service be delivered remotely? And if it can't, and they require in-service in order for FAPE to be met, the school district has to do that. Now, of course, the court and the judge doesn't go into, well, what if I have teachers that don't want to, or what if we have health concerns? You know, it stops there. It's up to then the district to decide how that would look. Right. And this is so interesting because this is the first time in history that something like this has happened, especially Mm -hmm. where we have the technology to provide (laughs) remote services instruction right right so I think it'll be really interesting to see how this progresses um and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move on into this next case yes and and I think that first one really sort of gave an overview it was the first one that came out um 
well, I shouldn't say it was the first one. It was one of the first that I'm aware of at least. And I think the second one that we're going to talk about sort of, we can put it all together and get a clear idea of what legislative wise, um, I guess we should have done or should do if this were to occur again with the pandemic and, you know, closures. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the second case. Um, I think one of the reasons this is so interesting that is that it's literally from last month. Um, this mm-hmm. is coming from uh, April 22nd, 2022. Um, so Tina, will you just go ahead and give us a quick overview of this one? Yeah. So this again is from Spedlaw blog and Dr. Yell's um, blogging on it. If you want to search this case, It's actually OCR, which stands for Office of Civil Rights, docket number 09-21-5901. But for those of you who maybe aren't special educators or you're not sure of the difference, um, I want to just do a really quick overview of sort of OCR versus the U.S. Department of Education and IDEA. Um, This is an OCR case or the Office of Civil Rights. When suits are brought against IDEA, that sort of falls under the U.S. Department of Education. Um, Now, OCR is also part of (laughs) the Department of Education. It gets a little, I I think it gets a little muddy. I'm sure people who know exactly how everything feeds into each other would would disagree with me. But basically, when there's issues um, regarding Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, those are overseen or enforced by the Office of Civil Rights. And how that's included now is any potential cases that revolve or um, include Section 504, which is um, the section that oversees education and uh, making sure that we're not discriminating due to disabilities. Um, Anyone with disabilities, and that includes students who are served under IDA Um, In fact, students who are served under IDEA are automatically like protected by IDEA legislation and ADA. Now, um, ADA laws are civil rights laws. There is not direct funds necessarily tied to them. However, all federal funding is tied to them, if that makes sense. Um, At the same time, students who are qualified under Section 504 um, would also receive protections under the different ADA legislation or laws. So if you wanna read more about what sort of OCR oversees, um, we're gonna attach a link hopefully to the letter that's between like OCR and the this um, case we're gonna talk about. And they really explain in the first part, all of the different legislation and laws that they oversee. So you can take a, a look at that. But anyways, okay. So I'm sorry. And for those of you that I confused, I apologize. The whole legal thing can be a hot mess in, in my opinion. But well, that's why case. I love this, us doing this podcast. I feel like I'm learning so much about this stuff that that's, no one thought was important to tell me about in my special well, education training. Well, like for me, when I teach this to like my, my students, I like have a visual, you know, and it's yes. like a diagram and that's, I, with doing this auditory, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, I want to use my hands and explain. Um, I'll start in the background, just explaining. And Tina now has her hand in the left hand side yes. of the screen. Yeah. Or like I have a whiteboard drawing yeah. circles, but I think the thing is, is that it's sort of like all students with IDA are also protected under ADA, but we do have students who are protected under ADA that may not receive IDEA services. Right. Okay, and we can go into that at another time. Um, but with this case, it actually involves the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest in the nation, which is huge. So we're talking about a huge population of schools and students. Um, Office of Civil Rights investigated the LA Unified School District to basically determine whether the district failed to provide a FAPE, again, to students with disabilities under IDEA and Section 504. 
um, specifically OCR investigated whether services were provided in conformity with students IEP and 504 plans during school closures when LA Unified provided remote learning. Um, so very similar to, you know, the other were the services provided um, during remote learning the same as what the IEP or Section 504 plan um, stated. So to do this, OCR reviewed all kinds of district documents and data. They held interviews with staff, parents, witnesses, et cetera. Um, and so that's sort of the overview of it. Before we go on, I feel like I just, I feel like we should have included a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode because as you're talking I'm having so many flashbacks to when we were fully shut down and just the all the extra paperwork and the logging of the every bit of contact that we had with a family we had to log and I'm just like please don't ever make me go back (laughs) well and when we go through some of the um like the findings it's interesting because that's one of the things they talked about was how they log time. Right. And how they log like different contact hours or not and what could count as like direct versus indirect. And yeah. And so hopefully I think at this point we can't really go back. Right. And fix, you know, what we've already done. Right. But it's going to be definitely what can we do be moving forward or if this were to occur what we can do right and hopefully these kind of cases having them out there in a way that's easy for educators to understand will help teachers understand the purpose for because we have had some new things added to IEP since COVID um, Mm -hmm. to help make sure if this happened again, we would be prepared to serve the students well. And hopefully this will help teachers understand why we're doing that. Those things are in place. Right. So um, we can go ahead and move on. Do you just want to go ahead and share what OCR's findings from this um, investigation was? Yes. So basically on the basis of the investigation, which I'm going to go through some of the evidence, because I think that's what's really important. Um, for us to see sort of what they did maybe well, what they didn't do so well, um, what the basis for their finding was. But the officials found that, um, OCR officials found that the LA Unified failed to provide a fate to eligible students with disabilities during remote learning um, in violation of Section 504. So again, they ruled in favor of the families or the students. They said that the the district um, didn't provide a fate. They did it, and these are the different ways they went through and sort of set the specifics on what the school district didn't do or how they violated FAPE. They limited the services that were provided with students based on considerations other than their individual needs. Um, So basically, they just made that, you know, general, we're all going Mm -hmm. remote regardless of what your individual needs are. Right. Um, they failed to evaluate students prior to making significant changes in placement, which we all know is a big IDA. Anytime there's that change in placement, um, need to be evaluated. And also going into the, the next couple, that's not, um, the district also failed to provide fate because they didn't have a group making the placement decision. So we, if we're not sure how, IDA works. When we place a student in a setting, it's made up by the IEP team, right? So Mm -hmm. we have the special ed teacher, we have the families, we have the gen ed teachers, administrators, related service providers, and the team decides really where is the best placement for this child. It's a, a team decision. And anytime we make a big change and say, well, now they're going to be educated in this classroom instead, again, that team has to come together and sort of make that decision. Um, And LA Unified did not do that. They also um, didn't accurately or sufficiently track services that were provided for students with disabilities. Um, And lastly, they failed to develop and implement plans to adequately remedy instances 
in which FAPE was not provided to eligible students with disabilities. Okay, so that's a long list of it is things that went wrong. <laughs> I feel like I need to go back and like read each one. Basically, they made decisions not based on individual needs. It was a blanket they, decision. Right. They um, did not evaluate students before making changes in placement. They also didn't use like that team approach to making the placement decisions. They also didn't track the services that were provided for students with disabilities and they didn't develop and implement plans after the fact to remedy instances where FAPE hadn't been provided. Okay. So sort of so, in a nutshell. Yeah, that was helpful to summarize it. Um, let's talk a little bit more about how they came to this conclusion. What was some of the data that they were sifting through to figure all of this out? So the, and I'm hoping we'll attach, well, we already talked about attaching this letter. This is within the OCR letter that they wrote and sent to like the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. They have all kinds of evidence. It's almost 20 pages long of just evidence. And I read through it um, to try and save you from having to read through it. And this is sort of in a nutshell, the main things that I sort of found that were pieces of evidence that helped show that the school district didn't provide FAPE to students with disabilities. Um, they had inconsistent tracking of implementation of IEP services, reviews, evaluations. So some teachers track services really well, some did not. Um, they talked a lot about the different um, software they used to track, and there was all kinds of issues with the software as well. Okay. And, and trying to document and be able to see if IEPs were overdue or not. At first, at the beginning of the shutdown, because this really took place over like two sort of school years, right? They, they finished out 2020 or 1920, yes. right? And then mm -hmm. starting in that fall of that, you know, 2020, it was completely remote. Um, so in the beginning part, there was no documentation of any kind of 504 services. Okay. So the, the, the district did not track if any uh, 504 services were, were being provided. I should probably say what those are. So section 504 plans work similarly to IEPs. Um, a student may have a impairment or something that they might require accommodations for a really common um, ADHD, diabetes, health related type disabilities where, you know, maybe it allows them to use the bathroom um, unlimited amount of times or go to the nurse or frequent breaks, those types of accommodations um, and services. And so they have their own evaluation, own plan development uh, process, but basically there was no documentation of any services being provided. Um, this next one I want to read as a quote because I, I, I think that this is huge. So they had several different webinars and trainings and during the, close, um, the closure, this is what the district said, and I'm going to read this um, sort of, you know, exactly what it says. The district said the purpose of, of SPED, the expectation is not for providers to deliver every minute per um, IEP during COVID-19 school closures, but to document each attempt and contact with the student. Mm. So the expectation wasn't, so if you don't know, IEPs have how many minutes of services your child will get, right? So a kid may get a hundred minutes a week, 200 minutes a week, whatever it is. So they said it wasn't for providers to make sure they delivered every minute, but just to document um, what attempt they made and what contact they had. So really here, they're not even saying to document the actual services, but no. even where you attempted Correct. and counting that as a service. Correct. Um, in September... They had training um, and it stated that providers were, and I'm going to read this again from the quote, to deliver services per FAPE during COVID-19 school closures to the maximum extent feasible 
given the district learning format and this service delivery may not amount to a minute to minute match. So again, you know, try and do your best, but if it doesn't um, match up minute to minute, then, you know, you're sort of okay. Um, the central district office didn't specify whether or how section 504 plans were reviewed. They didn't um, specify how to determine if services would be provided during synchronous or asynchronous instruction, um, or even if schools had section 504 meetings to address their needs during remote learning. Um, so that's sort of part of it. And then I also want to talk about um, this recruitment, recoupment versus compensatory. And it, it's interesting. Um, and so LA Unified said that they weren't going to use the word compensatory um, and that they had to instead focus on recoupment. Now, compensatory basically means if, let's say, um, my student, the, the court ruled or judge ruled that my child was, um, got compensatory services, what that would mean is that the school district is going to have to provide my student with something extra, right? It may be paying a teacher to stay after. It may be having to pay for my kid to go to some special summer camp to make up for something, right? It, it basically is going to probably cost money, right? Right. Um, they said that they were only going to use the word recoupment um, because when they talked about recoupment services, it implied that the district and families were going to work to develop to develop a plan for students um, to address any loss of skills or lack of progress caused by COVID-19 school facility closures. The different types of services that they would provide included things like enrichment courses, tutoring, a learning center, collaboration with service providers and parents, guardians, instructional strategies, um, teaching missing skills. So basically it was, we're gonna look at these students and what are some extra things we can give the families or do in the school that will hopefully help them regain what they lost. That's not gonna cost us money, you know, which- right. I, that's just me and me in a nutshell. Um, now, <laughs> the local district, and this is the thing I think we're we're going to come back to. Um, the local district, the east, and so the because LA is so big, they have different. The even though it's a large school district, then they have sort of, you know, geographical. Right. So we district have like east district yes, west. Correct. Um, the one director described that basically this is almost exactly word for word because the district did not create COVID-19 it is not at fault for the non-provision of services during the pandemic and therefore would provide recoupment services to address learning loss rather than comp compensatory education so take a second I'll read that again because the district did not create COVID-19 it is not at fault for the non-provision of services during the pandemic and therefore would provide recoupment services to address learning loss rather than compensatory education. That is an interesting statement. I know. Because. I wonder how many other people have made similar. I was about to say with that logic, uh -huh. there is so much, you could go so many places with that logic. So many places we don't need to go. <laughs> yeah. No. And my thing when I read it, though, I was like, okay, even sometimes even when you think things, sometimes they shouldn't maybe come out your mouth. It, yeah. It kind of feels like a little kid's explanation for like, I, I don't know, like I didn't yes. clean up the mess because it wasn't my drink I knocked over. Correct. Yes. And that's how it was sort of like, since we didn't cause it, we're not going to have to provide this, you know, compensatory Even though we education. responded incorrectly. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Um, 
so I I tried to then (laughs) summarize even more the evidence that like what I felt they sort of did wrong okay um that are much shorter and hopefully easier to follow. So this but, is like what went wrong for dummies right here that you're going to yeah, give us. Exactly. That's exactly right. Basically they didn't make individualized decisions regarding services, accommodations for students with IEPs and section 504 plans. Um, they did not give services provided by the students IEPs or section 504 plans. They didn't track or track inconsistently those different services. Um, They did not evaluate or offer any compensatory services. They basically overlooked all students who qualified for Section 504. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, sort of overall, what I took away from reading the the evidence was that the district didn't cause COVID. So they would do what they could to provide what services they could. And that since they couldn't control COVID, any issues due to COVID laid restrictions, and regarding students' access to education should not impact FAPE. Okay. That and was my over sort of overview of it. We'll do the best we can. COVID. You has, get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. Pitch a fit. Yep. We didn't cause COVID. So and I don't care fault. that you need behavioral intervention. Your mom can do the best job she can. Right. And uh, yeah. So interesting. And just a quick note to our listeners out there. Um, that brief was over 15 pages long. And those things yeah, are not fun to, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the longest brief in history. <laughs> no, not really. There have been some longer, but yeah, exactly. Um, so just a quick note to let you know how much Dr. Christina Randall <laughs> loves you. She read that for you. <laughs> I did. Actually, I found it really interesting, but it is long. Yeah, I really appreciate your summary. And, and I didn't include all of it. They had other, if, if you're interested, they had a couple, like I'm going to call them parental impact statements where okay. it talked about the parents and working at home. And the, the one that really, I think sort of tugged at my heartstrings the most was one of the families who their student got, I wasn't sure of the acronym because I think it was state related, right? Um, but they got some kind of behavioral intervention. and just the lack of that and the parent, it was on the parent to deliver. Um, and the other thing I found interesting, and I'm going to say from my own children's experience that I don't know that that grammatically is correct. I felt when, um, they had the school closures, they still were delivered a lot of instruction synchronously. So everyone would get on at the same time. It seemed to me what I read through the evidence, a lot of this was asynchronous. Mm. So the services would be, you know, sending mom or dad an email with stuff to do, posting things. I didn't get a broad sense of a lot of um, synchronous. Which I feel like adds to the issue when you think about like, that was a challenge with my students during these closures. I couldn't do anything hardly without either having a FaceTime chat with a parent to explain the activity to the parent or Mm -hmm. a a video chat with my kid because most of my kids couldn't read like right (laughs) there was no right here's a here's a google classroom assignment go do it but -hmm. it sounds like there was a lot of that in this yeah and then they also provided um What's the word? I guess protocols for like related service providers for if they just sent an email that still counted, like if they sent, let's say speech and language, and I send a list of words to a parent, like practice these, that would count as service versus direct. And they also broke those down. I, I don't know. I think there was a lot of issues. Again, they also didn't track that well. So in some cases, they didn't know if a student had been provided services or not. Okay. So this is, I like how practical, like, I feel like we got it. We get a pretty good insight of what was happening here from right. this. So I think this is really interesting. So um, what did, kind of what did OCR think about all of this information and data that they gathered? So they took this. And so, and I guess I should go back to the recruit recruitment thing. So the district thought that they were in the clear because they were going through this whole recruitment, 
basically, um, I believe this, I may be misspeaking, but I believe basically each student, the groups were, um, or IEPs were looking at that and sort of adding that into like, what extra things should we give them? You know, should they go to this tutoring after school or what should it be? Right. Um, but basically OCR said because of the violations, they OCR concluded that LA Unified had to take remedial actions to overcome the instances of discrimination. Okay. In particular, OCR required that comp compensatory services were required to remedy the education. So crazy, <laughs> crazy. I know what? Yeah. And other deficits stemming from the school district's actions um, that did not receive evaluations or services because of their uh, actions during the pandemic. So, okay. <sighs> yes. So basically the school district was found at fault. They did not provide a FAPE in lots of different ways. And I just want to backpedal a little bit back to this compensatory versus recoupment. Like if the idea with recoupment is we're going to make up the loss gains with right. less services, then why, I don't know, whatever services they're doing that are going to make up the loss gains with less time, we need to be making those the services all the time. Like, time. Yeah, like why like aren't we doing a, those all the time? Right, if a student was expected to grow like two reading levels a, over the course of a semester and they didn't grow any and then you're going to come in with a tutoring session that's going to get them back to where they were going to be like why weren't they getting that tutoring yeah that why? that logic isn't yeah real it's not there <laughs> no and I think that that's the thing and I think that's the part that's interesting and we can always come back to this but and I don't think this is just a special education type thing but I think that you could argue that what percentage do you think of kids who truly lost? Oh my gosh. Valuable skills. Oh my gosh. I mean, seriously, like all students, I think it'd be really high and maybe there's been a study, but I would think 80, 90%. Tina, there were school districts that I know people that worked in, in other parts of the state that were virtual, virtual, but we're not one-to-one -one with technology. So they were right. virtual if they had a computer at home. Otherwise, good luck. Yeah. So, no, it, and that's my thing is like, and I think we know with our kids with, you know, different disabilities, they're even farther behind, right? right. They require even more services. They require, you know, these extra interventions. So to me, <laughs> yeah, I, mm-hmm. There's and then I think about too, I go back to, I always go, you know, our students who have more severe disabilities. Oh my gosh. Yeah. How they could not have been getting services over this time. Yeah. I, I don't know how I, I shouldn't say that remote services. I don't right. know how that could have looked. And that's where my heart really hurts for those students whose parents, a lot of families in that situation, their parents have to go to work. Right. Right. So they were with grandparents if they were fortunate enough to have grandparents close by. Um, right. Like there was no, I think we like to think in an ideal world, their parents were fulfilling the role of the teacher. Mm -hmm. From I, My random percentage here would be for 90% of families, maybe 99.9% .9 of families. That's not the reality. And we, I, in my experiences in the classroom, the way a kid acts at school is not the way that they act at home. So even if that those parents were able to be home and were doing their very best, right? Most of them do not have education training. And even the, go ahead. And most of them, like that kid, is wilding out for them, where they would never do that at the at so, school. So I got to share this. So <laughs> it happened with us. My son, who at the time was in fifth grade. All right, I have didn't quite have my doctor. I was just finishing up, but you know, uh -huh. pretty experience, uh -huh. elementary LD <laughs> got it covered. Right. I I'll never forget. My husband came home and it was in March. Was it in March or we were in April? And I think it was at that point, just till May. And I remember telling him that there was not enough vodka in the world that I could not do this till May. And, and I, March I was like, right when it happened. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> like we weren't even in it. And I remember my husband saying, go, go get a 
a Coke, go for a drive. And I, I drove like 30 minutes, just drove around. And when he was gone, he talked to our son and said, you know, what's, what's happening, what's going on. And I remember he said something like, well, if mom didn't run it like a prison and not just like, okay, but I think I'm a perfect example. Like I, I was looking at, do I need to hire him a tutor? Like I can't deliver it because I could teach 24 other people's kids. Well, you know, right. And here's the other thing that I don't think we think of very often, even you in the house, in your house, doing all the research-based strategies that, you know, the thing about those research-based strategies is most of them were researched in a classroom or clinical setting. Right. So that doesn't always translate to the home environment. No, no. And I was just lucky, you know, my husband had to work. He never got you know, um, worked from home. I was in a situation where I was home and able to do it. Um, but yeah, sorry for the little side note. No, I think those are good things. It doesn't even matter for those of us that have education. (laughs) Right. It was still terrible. terrible. (laughs) I hate it. it. Oh gosh. Um, so again, there's our trigger warning. Um, if you're having flashbacks, please feel free to pause this, this podcast and take some deep breaths before continuing. Before we finish, remind me to tell you about my alcohol story about the doctors and my conversation. Cause it's really interesting. Anyway. Did you just go ahead and do that? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I was at the doctors <laughs> and during this whole thing and her, um, her, we were talking about drinking and COVID and her brother-in-law delivered, um, was like an alcohol delivery person that would deliver to the liquor stores. Right. He said like between like March and June of that first time, like alcohol sales, like doubled. Oh my gosh. I'm sure. I mean, I remember the meme about the toilet paper shortage. Everybody (laughs) talk about why are we out of toilet paper? Why are the liquor store counters not, or shelves not empty? Right. I just, yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was my little side note. You're good. I think that was a good place to end our little (laughs) rabbit trail. We'll jump back onto the main path here. So thinking about what they said the school district would have to do, have to provide those compensatory services and remedy um, the educational deficits that resulted from their lack of services. Yes. How? So (laughs) what they, what OCR basically wrote it out. Like, this is what you are going to do. And I really think that this is good for all districts to sort of look at. We know that OCR is saying, like, if you do this, you are doing it correctly. Right. Um, but basically the school district had already initiated a program. Um, probably as soon as they saw that, you know, they were going to be under review, um, through OCR in which the students IEP deans were going to conduct this three-part analysis to determine Mm. if the COVID-19 school closures um, or what their effect was on the students. First, they, um, the team, notice team again, not just, you know, one person, the team would evaluate the student's progress towards meeting their goals to determine if they made progress or if there was evidence of learning loss. Second, they would examine the services provided before, during, and after the school closure. So that one I think is huge. So if you think about, you know, before the school closure, my kid was going two hours a day to resource. And during the school closure, they got 30 minutes a week. Right. We're back in school and they're back to two hours. You know, that that's a a pretty big deficit or a, a big change. Um, third, the team would analyze their current progress in comparison to progress that would be expected given their history. Right. Um, And then after considering all three of those, they would determine if the student had made sufficient progress towards the goals or if they had regressed um, or if the student demonstrated a need for additional services, at which time the team would develop a plan um, to implement whatever those services would be. the, they still were calling them like recruit recruitment services, but they, they define those as being reasonably calculated to provide educational benefits that likely would have been accrued from special education services had the school facilities remained open. So they can keep calling them what they want to, but basically it, you know, has to be, um, 
provided. If the team determined that those services would be provided, the district had to track and monitor the provision of these services, which are huge. Okay. Um, and then OCR's ruling provides to a way that school districts might want to address a uh, possible failure of, you know, that failure of school districts, if we didn't address, if, if you feel as a school district, we didn't really address those student losses from um, the school closures, this would definitely, again, be sort of a three-step process in order to, to help you do that. I just feel like them, this is very much my opinion with very little to back it up. I feel like them calling it, uh, still calling it recoupment services. They're like trying to way, be like. Yeah, I feel like they're trying to create extra work for the teacher, but not have to pay that teacher any extra. <laughs> Maybe, and I'll have to read, but yeah. I, they're just, they are bent on that recoupment. So, um, sorry. What if, no, you're good. What about this idea that districts can't con control COVID? Yeah. So as I was reading this and I was, you know, I'm going back and forth and this can also get very opinionated and political. You know, we, we there's lots of different camps. We have entered full opinion. Very full little opinion. of this is from Dr. Yell. Probably yeah, none, none of it from none this point <laughs> on is Dr. <laughs> right. Yell. So, um, right. Please don't be mad at us, Dr. Yell. <laughs> and so like, as I was looking at this, this is, this again is mine, but you know, these legislations are laws and we look at ADA really sort of started in the seventies. It wasn't, well, there wasn't ADA then ADA was in with the first president Bush in the early nineties, um, IDEA seventies. And then, you know, it's been amended a whole bunch of times, but when this law and this legislation was written, this there hadn't been anything like this before. Right? right. And so when legislations and laws are written, you know, they don't include things like, well, if there's a famine, if, you know, we're invaded by, you know, Canadians, if this happens, like it, it's not written that way. It's written that this is what you're going to do. Right. So it was really, in my opinion, these, these school districts sort of, I don't want to say played like Russian roulette, but I think if I were in a district position, I would think they were probably thinking we need to do what's best for our students, but also for our staff. Well, and along with what's best for our students and for our staff, a lot, I think a lot of thought shifted towards what's best for our students medically. Like how yes. can we keep them healthy, even if it sacrifices some of the educational benefit? especially right. in 2020 when we thought everybody who got this is going to die. Like, Correct. I think that that was a school of thought. Yeah. And I think that, that when you look at the legislation, there's not that wiggle room. It doesn't right. say, well, the school direct. Now, maybe if you would go through every single IEP, right. Mm -hmm. And the team would decide that it is in the best interest for this child to have homebound services type thing where they're going to be delivered remotely. Right. Um, but as it's written, I, I think the biggest issue is that they're not individualized. Right. And I would love to do a survey to really ask like our special ed teachers, if anyone, I, I'm going to make the assumption, I don't know that anyone went through and individually decided on the services they were going to provide. I think it was this blanket. Well, and in, in, in like the New Mexico case in the same thing with South Carolina, our governor came in and said, it's going to be remote, right? We're going to right, do remote right. learning. That's not individualized. Right. And, and so I think a lot of that was based, how it played out was very much based on the families, like what's their access to internet? What is, because Remote was hard for my kids that didn't mm -hmm. have internet at home. Right. And I, I think that it's going to be interesting. I honestly think that we're going to see more of this. I think this is just sort of the beginning. What's sort of sad at this point is we obviously can't go back and redo 
Gosh, you know, right. how, how we dealt with it. I think we can move forward. Um, but I, I do think it's important to remember, you know, when we think about our students with disabilities who are served under like IDEA in particular, you know, we have that word IEP, it's individualized, it's individualized. Right. And I really think as soon as we make a blanket policy that's going to affect all students, you've already violated FAPE. Right. Because Absolutely. that is what IDA sets out to do, right, is to provide that individualized education. And if I'm saying, regardless, you're going to be at home and you're going to receive your services at home, I think you have an argument that it's been violated. Yeah, I think that that's a really valid point. Um, so I think that if, and regardless of COVID, and we can debate back and forth on, well, what if I don't have teachers who want to do it or, you know, help, whatever, regardless of that. The other thing that I got from both of, of these sort of cases is regardless, if the services can't be provided remotely and the student has to have those services, we have the obligation to provide them in person if that's what it is. Right. And again, I know that doesn't solve the solution. I know that doesn't solve, you know, what do we do? But as far as legal wise goes, that's what the courts are going to, to look at, they're not going to say, well, I couldn't find a teacher willing right. to do it. And I think this is where as like actually being in the thick of this as a teacher, it's so hard to, I know that legally it doesn't really, nothing really matters except for what happened and what the law says. Right. But just thinking about how many decisions were made in a panic uh-huh. Because in March of 2020, right. legitimately 90, 100% of people thought that if you came in contact with COVID, you're going to die. Like you were going to die. Right. And I think right. so much of what happened was reactionary and panic based. Mm -hmm. And uh -huh. so I think of that, like thinking, in, thinking about how decisions were made. But then I also, if I shift and think about from the, lens of advocate for my students I'm still angry at right especially thinking like New Mexico like thinking about this like this isn't okay they still weren't served yeah and the I mean, lifelong impact that could have on yes. a kid who maybe was on the cusp of getting a new skill that could open up Majorly a world of new things right. right so I know and that's the thing is it's one of those, you know, everyone has perfect, you know, 2020 looking back type thing, vision in it. It's just, it's a tough call. And I also, I don't, I don't think that anyone's necessarily like to blame. I think it's right. one of those like moving forward. If this were to happen again, if we ever encounter something like this again, which I know we all hope never happens. Right. But if so, we've I got think to be prepared. Correct. And I think the key is they have, it has to be individualized. Absolutely. And, and if they can't get services, if they can't get the same educational benefit, you know, remotely, then it's got to be in, in person. Now on the toss of that, I don't like this, but I'm going to say it at the same time, maybe it would, would be better to not better, not better. Um, what, what's the wording I want to use? Let's say I know that I'm not providing, I'm the district leader. I know that my students aren't being provided the services they need, but maybe it's better for me to know that I'm going to get some extra pandemic money. And so after mm. the fact, then I'm going to provide these different like compensatory education type things. Right. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that we ever want to approach education like that. Right. But at the same time, I, I don't have all the answers. Um, but and the this main is I think it's one of those things that now it almost feels to think about and prepare for. It almost feels like doomsday prepping. Like <laughs> this is, it, I, I it like, feels like we're past it. Right. So it feels strange to now think, how can we prepare for this? Mm -hmm. But we have got to, in school districts 
think about how can we prepare for this in a way that also maybe benefits the classroom instruction? Like, how can we be more integrated with technology from a state and federal funding way? How can we make sure there's technology in every student's hands? Right. I don't know. I think that this could spread out to a lot of different policies, even thinking of internet access, all kinds of things beyond just education. And I think the other thing is, is like in the example with the, with OCR and LA Unified too, if they would have provided those students with the compensatory services, Mm -hmm. I think the ruling would have still been against them that they did do things wrong, but they were correcting them. Right. Do you know what I mean? And that's really the, that's where the issue comes down to. It's not so much like, oh, you're in huge trouble because you didn't do it. It's what, what are you doing to fix it? Right. And so I think that's something too, that probably our district should be looking at, you know, have we evaluated our students? Have we looked at, do our students need those summer services or compensatory type services instead of saying, which my feeling is it's sort of like, well, everyone's sort of in the same boat, right? Everyone's right. lost some skills. So that's another thing to think about. And this is just, this is my last thought. Um, In the IEP, I think this is throughout the whole state of South Carolina. They added a contingency plan. So you fill that, fill that out as you're writing the IEP. What would happen if we had to shut down? I think one of the best things a district could do to prepare for this would be to provide more training on what a contingency plan should look like. Mm. because Mm. as a teacher, I think a lot of practically, how would I be providing those services if we had to go remote again? And I think it could be very easy to dramatically cut those services because I know that I know Mm -hmm. this family is going to be able to get on for 30 minutes a week. And that's all that they're going to be able to give me because I know the family situation versus this, if, I, if right. I'm thinking just a virtual setting versus this other family who I know has really involved parents and can work with me on video chat, let me work with the kid. Like, and that's probably, that's not the right way, I think, to create those services. Well, and the same thing goes with, if you know that you're creating service times and goals for a potentially having to go remote are those being changed so that it makes it easier to go remote? Exactly. Which is what you mean you're talking about too, but it's, it's, you know, are those things being changed? Right. And I think we need training on that. Mm -hmm. Like clear, this is the right way to do this, which I know it's never black and white, but. Right. And I think too, I know that OCR has come out with a couple of different, um, I don't want to call them, they weren't called briefs because they are definitely briefer than this brief that wasn't really a brief um, on like how to transition students back. Okay. Um, things like teaching SEL skills now that we're back in school, that type of thing. So guidance. Yes. Maybe going to places like that to look for guidance mm-hmm. on some of that. Yeah. yeah. I don't have all that, all the answers. I just, I think the main thing we have to make sure we do is things have to be individualized. Yes. Um, Well, I think that these two cases really get at the heart of why we want to do this podcast. I think they are so practical to what we're doing, especially right now in the, Mm -hmm. we're kind of in COVID, we're kind of in the post COVID, like still living with that threat of school closures. Right. Um, I think that this is really helpful. And even if it's not, we don't come out with a lot of practical, here's exactly how to do this. To fix it. Right. I think right. it it gives us a good, re- It for me as a teacher, it helps me understand here's why we do the things we do, the things mm-hmm. that we don't like about our jobs, all the extra paperwork and all the like thinking through each individual student services. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's helpful for the, for the why behind some of those things. Right. And 
I don't disagree at all with that. And I think it's important to just keep in mind. And like we've been saying, hopefully it doesn't occur again. Right. But if so, remember to be individualized as much as you can. The other thing um, before, as I think we're getting ready to finish up, there's two different letters. If our listeners are interested in looking at those that are between um, OCR One is like the letter that was from OCR to the superintendent of LA Unified School District. And the other is the resolution agreement. Um, And in that resolution agreement, that sort of says, you know, these are the steps that they're going to do. And they have something like 7,000 students that they have to go through and do this three-step. Wow. Not quite 7,000. That's right under like 6,600 and something. Wow. So it's a, a big chunk of kids. Yeah. And I will, I will try to add those to the show notes okay. as well. I think that'll be helpful. Um, well, I think that this was a good episode. I hope that we didn't go too long. I, <laughs> we did go long. I'm sorry. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love for you to rate us in the Apple podcast. That would app. be amazing. And if you don't use the Apple podcast app, app, but you're on Spotify, um, share us with your friends who are in special education, um, post us on social media. We would love to hear from you. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you. Bye.